A special education teacher, an administrator, and a lawyer walk into a bar. And our conversations can get pretty lively. And now you'll join us while we talk all about special education and the public school system. I'm Robin Fabiano, a special education teacher and a building-based student services administrator. And I'm joined by Abby Hanscom, a district-level student services administrator, and Angela Smagula, a founding partner at Kahn and Smagula, specializing in educational law. We've been working together across multiple districts since 2009 and have lots of opinions about special education. In this podcast, we hope to share information, lessons learned, interviews with VIPs, and bring some humor to an otherwise serious topic. But before we get started, three disclaimers. One, the views shared on this podcast are our own and don't represent the views of the district in which we work. Two, Everyone might want Khan and Smagula as their attorneys, but Angela is not giving legal advice during this podcast. Three, although there are federal laws governing special education, we work in Massachusetts, a state that has extra protections, so some of which we speak about may not apply in your state. So let's get started. Hi, Angela. Hi, Abby. Hello, Robin. Hi, Abby. Hi, Robin. How are you guys tonight? I feel like Abby never says hi to me. Oh, that's weird. You're right. Hello, Angela. Hi, Abby. <laughs> hi, Angela. Nice to hear your voice. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I need a new start because I always <laughs> say, hi, Abby. Hi, Angela. I need to change it up. Maybe you should do like a welcome back, like some sort of like. Oh, you could have a tagline. Yeah, we'll work right. on that. We'll work on that. So we're actually going to have a two-part podcast. And so tonight will be part one. We're going to be talking about discipline. And it's a really, really large topic. And we probably could make it a four-part podcast, but we're worried people won't tune in for four parts of the same subject. So we're going to make it into a two-part podcast, and then maybe we'll revisit it another time. So the origin of tonight's podcast was a Um, an article that we found on Disability Scoop, which is a pretty cool online website. And I follow them on Twitter also. So shout out to them. And they should sponsor our podcast. (laughs) Yes, Maybe they will after they hear this. I should send them the link. Um, But there was a county in Florida and a parent group on behalf of their children with disabilities um, went to legal aid and filed a complaint against the county for misuse of discipline policies and for not considering the, their children's disability into the analysis of discipline. And what we're going to talk about tonight are all of the laws that govern discipline in special education. And there are things that we need to consider and think about and processes that we go through as administrators and special education teachers when disciplining children with disabilities. So we're going to talk about that and kind of break it down. Tonight, we'll do the philosophical aspect of it. And then in our next podcast, we'll talk about the technical aspects of discipline because there are many forms and processes and different steps that we need to take to make sure that the child's rights are being protected at the same time as they're being disciplined. Abby and Angela, anything you want to jump in and add to the intro? 
No, I would just say, I guess this is one of those topics that no matter what job you have in a school, what role you're in, eventually you will come across. And so I think it's important for everybody to give it some thought, even if you think like today, this isn't something you do as part of your job. And I think as parents, this is going to be informative because if your child is being disciplined in school, there are some questions you should be asking as well. Yep, absolutely. And this Florida article is relevant to Massachusetts and also the other 48 states because discipline for special education students is governed by federal law, the IDEA and the CFR, which is the Code of Federal Regulations uh, that are the regs that are applicable, um, all govern the implementation of discipline with kids with special needs. So you have this overlap state by state of whatever the state law might be for for discipline, but the special ed piece um, is governed as an umbrella by um, the IDEA. So it's gonna be applicable across the board, which is why we don't have to know what Florida's laws are to talk about that article or reference it. And we don't have to know actually what the code of conduct in that school is or that county because we know they're wrong because they um, have to take uh, the special education status of a student into account, um, at least in part, depending on number of days and all that good stuff. They can't just ignore it completely, Um, especially if they're getting sent out of school for you know, uh, an extended period of time. So Angela, when you read stories like this in 2021, and those laws have been in place since 2014, does it make your mind blown that there are still counties and cities and schools that are not following federal guidelines, federal laws? One of many things that blow my mind, Robin, (laughs) but what I will say is that the the IDEA piece has been in place a long, long time. So any anyone with half a brain in Florida or otherwise should know that if they're disciplining special ed kids, they need to be thoughtful about what the federal law says. And then in Massachusetts, as the years pass, I have less patience. But what I will say that there was a big overhaul in Massachusetts in 2014, it's chapter 222. Um, and, you know, that was a big enough overhaul that we'll talk about specifically next time and probably a little bit today that, um, you know, it took people time to really sort of get going. And and Abby will tell you that we train on it uh, annually to remind people because there was some big shifts that um, that the law put in place with regard to due process and education. It wouldn't be a podcast if I didn't say it. Of being a right and not a privilege and how that's impacted by discipline. So um, we have to make bumper stickers because I, I I don't mean to say it every podcast, but I do. So I think, you know, the discipline piece, what I would say is that um, it's really important to go slow when you're disciplining kids with special needs or any kid at all. Because in Massachusetts, there are, are procedures and practices that you have to follow and both parents and students have rights. Um, And so you want to make sure that um, the district's following their process and the parents and the students are having 
their due process rights appropriately followed. Um, Angela, can I ask you a question about that? So when you say go slow, I don't think you mean like stretch your process out across 50 days. I think you mean like in your brain, don't be so mad at the kid that you make rash decisions. But I want to check with you because there are timelines, which we can talk about in the future. But it isn't like people can stretch out their process forever because there are actually rules for how fast they have to go on that stuff, right? Yes, that is that is correct. When I say go slow, what I mean is don't jump right to the consequence without following our process in a timely and efficient manner. But more importantly, I often say to clients, not you two, of course, but to clients, I often say, what part of the handbook have we violated? Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, you know, I don't know. Well, but how are we talking about what we're doing if we haven't even got the baseline part of the handbook that we violated? Because that's part of notice um, in terms of putting people on notice of what we think that has happened. That's all part of due process as well. It's so funny you say that. We have a, a colleague, former principal friend who used to say to me, like, Angela would tell me, like, don't even pick up the phone to call me until you've identified which thing in the handbook is the violation. And he was always like, now I get it. Like, now I understand why she says that, because it's a waste of time. It's just like a nice chat to get feelings off your chest if you can't identify the thing in the handbook. And that is not a good use of our resources or time or your time. Well, it helps drive what everyone's trying to accomplish, which is, was there a violation of the handbook? And then what are the appropriate consequences? And then what process do we have to overlay upon that based on the law or the special education status of the student? And it certainly takes the emotion out of it because oftentimes, as Abby, you just said, people get angry at the kid. They're just mad that this happened and frustrated and act emotionally rather than rationally. Yeah. And it can have this crazy snowball effect where one angry, frustrated person can then like activate another angry, frustrated person. And before you know it, you're sitting in a meeting with three angry, frustrated people. And sometimes kids make mistakes and they do things that are hurtful and are cruel and are unfortunate. But we are the educational context where you're supposed to at least stand a chance to learn and grow from your mistakes. And so it's very hard when everyone's elevated, sometimes when things are very triggering to folks, to sort out that emotion so that we can calm back down to really do the process um, accurately. And so I think, Angela, when you say, you know, slow your roll, that's kind of what I hear is everybody take a breath. Let's figure it out. But we may, in fact, have to send a letter in the next 24 hours to meet our timeline at the same time. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And disabled students are a, a cohort of students that are often more consequenced mm-hmm. than not. So that's part of the reason why these constrictors were put in place by the IDEA to include discipline and to put different days in place and processes to follow and actually analyze what the disability is, which they didn't do in Florida, and how it might relate to a violation of the handbook such that we take that pieces into account because otherwise kids that are um, that are disabled might just be over-disciplined, right? Just like protected classes, this happens. You can get over-disciplined because assumptions are made that are often incorrect, right? So can we talk about pre-2014, at least in Massachusetts, and what the discipline philosophy was? 
um, and how that's shifted since then. Yep. So I taught certainly during those years. And my experience was that kids were assumed to be malicious and manipulative and be doing things on purpose and that um, kids were seen to be uh, having an issue because they were deciding to do that and that it was purposeful. And I think that's really important. Um, And I certainly worked in schools that had wooden benches out in front of the principal's office. And every day there'd be two, three, four kids, often boys of color, sitting there on the principal's deacon's bench, like swinging their feet, cooling their heels, waiting to be processed by the principal and out of class for an hour, two hours or three hours at a time. Um, And that was pretty typical. I think what you say around being out of class is really important because I think that piece is a big shift that typically the at the first offense, it was time out, leave my classroom, go sit somewhere else. Let's not disrupt everyone else. Um, and that was the solution. It didn't matter if the student, you know, said F you to the teacher. It didn't matter if they swiped their desk or they were just sitting there not doing anything and non-compliant, right? The go-to strategy was exclusion. Absolutely. And, you know, Angela talked about this idea of like um, disproportionate impact and kids with disabilities were getting sent to the principal's office, which I'm putting in air quotes. Um, or the principal was being called to come get them in class and escort them out. And we thought that that was what school leaders did, that a good principal enforced discipline on the building, had an orderly building, right? And these um, terms are very loaded and very full of kind of like um, the power structures of of schools. And so it was really challenging because many kids missed a lot of instructional time And if particularly the trigger for them was being embarrassed or frustrated academically or humiliated that they didn't quite know the answer and that was triggering their behavior, they were losing more instructional time being out, falling farther behind and less likely to be able to reenter and be successful. So it was a a negative spiral for many kids. Yeah, very cyclical. Also, I think it would be helpful to have Abby talk a little bit about therapeutic dismissals. So I lived through and I'm sure uh, perpetrated a couple of therapeutic dismissals. The idea being the kid was so upset and so worked up, but also the adults were so upset and worked up that uh, you would call the parent and send them home for the rest of the day. You'd say, come pick up your kid. And someone in authority would call the parent and the parent would have to leave work and hustle over and pick their kid up from the bench where they were sitting waiting. And that kid would lose that day of instruction and it would not be coded as a excused absence or really anything. Um, And over time, a kid could hit a pattern where across a school year, they might've been therapeutically dismissed four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10 times. And that's 5% of your school year in 180 day year. I think many people from our generation of teachers did that or observed that practice and had no idea that the technical term was therapeutic dismissal. I think it was like part of a behavior plan is when a kid reached a certain, you know, criteria, their parent was just called to come and get them. 
Yeah. That's if there was a behavior plan criteria in it. I think a lot of times it was just a nonverbal power structure in the building where someone reached their tipping point and said, this kid's going home. Yeah. I think that um, there became like a level of like inherent miscommunication when, when schools would call parents to tell them this was happening, right? Because sometimes um, like conversations between the student and the parent over the phone or can help resolve a, a high stress situation. Some parents, especially in lower income communities, interpreted that as being that they needed to come get their kid. And then the, the school administrator would say, oh, the parent wants to take their kid. So then there's this miscommunication. And this happens now, too, where schools have the best interest um, and the best intentions to just keep mom or dad apprised. And mom or dad receives the message as, oh, come get my, come get your kid. Right. So it's actually, you have to sort of work with both parties to make sure that the communication is as intended. Yeah. And I, I guess from my vantage point, what would happen is people had run out of places to have the kid be and people to process the kid. And they were feeling like there was no next step. Right. And so that's a big shift that kind of happened was this idea of building in layers of support for students, either mental health or social emotional support or academic reentry supports, because there was genuinely a perspective that there was nowhere for this kid to be and they needed to go home. The other big shift that kind of happened was this idea that behavior is communication. And that really is a groundbreaking big idea that has a lot of echoes in this conversation about discipline, I think. Right. So the child is either communicating, I'm humiliated, embarrassed, I don't want to be here, I need to do something else. And they're doing it through their behavior. And rather than sending them out of the class and disciplining them, the approach would be to try to figure out what is going on. Did something happen socially or is a skill missing academically that's causing the child to... Um, escape the situation and using behavior as a means rather than their words and admitting what's going on. And so what can we layer in? Can you layer in social emotional support? Can you layer in academic support? Take the time to figure out what is going on rather than going right to discipline. Yep. And, you know, most kids, not all, but most kids, if you give them a 15 or 20 minute break and give them some control over what has become an uncontrollable emotional context will deescalate and will come back to the process in some way. And often by the end of the day have re re-entered the classroom, re-entered the routine of the room, you know, et cetera. Kids are more resilient than we give them credit for. It doesn't mean that it always happens like that. And you do need sometimes to take a break and have other things happen, but the disciplinary exclusionary lens, um, really is a last, last, last resort now and not the first and only response. And that's a pretty big change. So Angela, when does that shift from problem solving a pattern of acting out behavior, disrupting a lesson, everyone thinks it's behavior is communication, has the right intention and is trying to work with a child, but the behavior continues. When does it shift from problem solving to 
a consequence? The answer to that question falls on if we're implementing an appropriate IEP. Because arguably, if we're implementing an appropriate IEP, then we are facilitating access in spite of or in support of the behaviors. And sneak peek, when we talk about disciplining kids with disabilities, that will be one of the key questions that we ask that then determines whether you roll into discipline or you roll into a team meeting, whether the IEP is being appropriately implemented. Another thing that's relevant to that question is if we're seeing behaviors that are new, are we convening the team and figuring out what's happening and adjusting accordingly also prior to implementing discipline, right? Also, the team and the classroom teacher, especially with younger kids, are reading the room a little bit and sort of understanding, is this communication? Is this part of what's happening with this kiddo on a day-to-day basis? Or is a kid with special needs also just breaking the rules? And there should be a consequence for that, right? So there is this broad stroke, no kid on an IEP, can it say in their IEP or the behavior plan that like the code of conduct doesn't apply, right? You can't say that. And you shouldn't be saying that. But there is sort of a line in the sand, and it's this 10-day rule, which we'll also talk about, where once you're getting to a critical mass of, of behavior and suspensions or consequences around that behavior, you really are, are looking at what's going on with regard to their status as a disabled student, as opposed to just assigning a consequence. So what I mean by that in practice is that the federal law says that short of 10 days, you can discipline a kid with special needs without taking necessarily into account their disciplinary uh, status or their specific disability if you want to. Now, often we don't do that as a matter of course, because we understand that the behavior is, we're course correcting the behavior short of discipline. But the fact of the matter is, is that you can have a kid with ADHD who uh, gets upset that they're told that they uh, have to wait five minutes until they go to recess and they tear a, a piece of paper off the wall and that's a violation of the handbook, there could be a consequence for that, which could be maybe they don't go to recess at all, right? Without taking into account the fact that as a general matter, they're a student with ADHD. Does that make sense? Or are you going to have to edit the shit out of that? No, that makes sense. And um, so I just want to say it one other way for our listeners. So students with IEPs or students with disabilities can be disciplined in any way, if they break a handbook rule, if that's the choice of the school without accounting for their impact of their disability under 10 days. However, it's usually not in the best interest of the child to do that. I I think that's a better summary with fewer words, which I advocate. And I think it depends on what the violation is, right? Again, again, like we don't have to, you know, It's sort of this idea of what is the disability? And there are kids that have disabilities that are 
doing extraordinarily well in school and also sometimes make mistakes and violate the handbook. And there's a consequence for that, right? So you don't get treated with kid gloves one way or the other necessarily, unless you're sort of moving towards this larger issue of a large consequence or the behavior is such that regardless of the disability, we think that there's needs to be sort of a consequence that's more complicated. And we'll be talking about that next, next time. Yeah. We used to think that um, discipline was synonymous with suspension, right? And so the other big idea is that there's a million steps before you suspend someone that are part of a disciplinary response that might be more meaningful for kids. So we talk about restorative justice. We talk about authentic, purposeful restoration of the environment. We talk about um, peer mediation, all these different things, some of which are appropriate in some scenarios, some of which are not appropriate in other scenarios. And there's this other concept of like how we've changed, how we think about putting our hands on kids with restraint, that instead of the go-to thing, it's the last resort. And there's really this whole universe of other things that we can do together that might in fact be more meaningful for kids and more useful and not take them out of instructional time um, and be much more flexible from a regulatory standpoint than the suspension road really is because it's very highly regulated as we'll find out. Um, so that's an important piece too. And so Abby, you can have discipline and I'm putting discipline in air quotes in many creative ways, as long as it doesn't incorporate exclusion from an instruction. And so the exclusion from instruction is really the piece that violates the student with disabilities rights. Yep. And most of these laws strongly advocate for alternative restorative actions as the preferred uh, disciplinary response. And it's it really causes you to think through what do you even mean when you use the word discipline? That's a very old fashioned term. It's a very loaded term. And instead, we might want to think about natural consequences, right? Which is if you are mean to someone, they probably don't want to play with you. And so what does that mean for you? And if you're trying to make friends with someone, but you're very bossy, maybe you need to work on that, right? Like there's layers and layers and layers. And to Angela's point, there are kids who break the law and who do criminal things, do hurtful things, do, you know, things that are civil rights infringements against other kids, sometimes who also have disabilities, for example. And those things do need to be dealt with and dealt with very seriously. Um, but in many, many instances, you can come up with something that isn't an exclusion from school. And for some kids, being home from school is not a punishment. So that's another big idea we just want to say is while it may ventilate your environment and respite the adults in your building and let them save face and make people think that you're like a tough principal, the kid may not experience being uh, suspended as any kind of a negative consequence that causes them to ever act differently in the future. And so it may undo or undermine some of your long-term goals, uh, which is ironic. And some such a good point. point. What you guys have done very succinctly and nicely is sort of summarize what the purpose of the ch the big uh, chapter 222, the comprehensive legislation to address student discipline in Massachusetts. The, the goal there was to limit the use of out-of-school suspension, specifically long-term suspension, as a consequence for misconduct. And, that, and that's imbued throughout the statute and the regulations. In fact, there's a specific regulation 
that speaks directly to the principle that lists all the other options you should be contemplating prior to suspension. And then the layers of due process that are are now in place for any out-of-school suspension are onerous, are very onerous. And the purpose of that is to um, encourage administrators and school districts to use other consequences that require less due process. And therefore, a violation of the handbook doesn't mean that you lose instructional time. At the root of it is this idea that when students are making mistakes and violating rules, that the consequence shouldn't immediately be a loss of instruction. And that's what was happening. Um, In addition to sort of having the consequence be commensurate with what the violation was or connected to the violation. So an example, and this is for regular ed kiddos as well. So an example that I often use is a kid who's skipping school and is truant from school, the consequence shouldn't be that they're suspended from school, right? But that was really one of the main drivers for the the change in the law and the overhaul um, with regard to regular ed students, because it also impacted them. The other big piece that's important to mention is that in Massachusetts, it was sort of a free-for-all, like after you sort of got over like the big, big three and the sort of these big, big violations that were also potentially crimes, right, that were governed by statute, which we'll talk about, everything else was a crapshoot. I mean, it was just like a grab bag. So you had kids that were being severely consequenced inconsistently across the Commonwealth, right? And so then we see that happening and impacting protected classes more. Um, And we see a socioeconomic piece to that, right? The squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? So the the parent who's well-moneyed can perhaps impact how their kid's being consequenced versus the family that's not. So what the state did was think, wow, like we need we need some consistency here and we need to capture all these other violations of which there are a gazillion. And, and we could even see it across the districts that we've all worked in, districts that had really robust handbooks and districts that didn't, even districts that really were doing their best to consequence students for violations of the handbook appropriately had to take a deep breath and reconsider what it, what it means to make a mistake and learn from it uh, as a result of the new laws that required us to think about our process and also allowed students and their parents to have due process rights to the the disciplinary consequences. Angela, I think the reauthorization of IDEA prior to the overhaul of the discipline law in Massachusetts incorporated um, FBAs or functional behavioral assessments And I'm curious if you think that that was related at all or had any impact on this overhaul was that you are now starting to look for the function of behavior, why students are acting the way that they're acting. And I'm wondering if that was a national um, philosophical change on discipline or if it was just in Massachusetts. Well, the rehaul that sort of focused on FBAs were it was it was important from a federal perspective because for the federal flowchart of discipline now an FBA was one of the major options if you were going to determine that the disability the the violation of the handbook was substantially related to the disability and if that was the case and it was brand new let's say brand new behavior or behavior that hadn't yet been addressed 
the FBA was now inserted in the flowchart as a response to that, right? So I think that there's not a direct correlation necessarily between that because Massachusetts was just so behind. And I mean, really, when you read about chapter 222, and then when I trained on it at the time, people were like, we've been doing it this other way forever. Like, and that's true, right? It was like this massive overhaul for the first time in in 20 years. So I'd like to think those pieces were thought about, but the fact of the matter is, is that what, what the Massachusetts law did that was helpful in that regard was talk about consequences other than suspension. And how that was helpful was that we had districts now that were thinking about FBAs even prior to consequence and when they were allowed to in that under 10-day period. Like, hey, I know we could suspend this kid, but this is what the classroom teacher is telling me, or this is what we think the trigger is, but we don't know, right? And then it's much better to collaborate with parents who have a lot going on anyway, instead of writing a letter or making a phone call um, or sending an email that says, we're consequencing your kid to say, we're trying to figure out what's happening and here's other ways we want to support them through the special ed process. That's a better conversation nine, nine out of 10 times. Prior to this change in the law, if a regular ed student got suspended, like he got sent home and you know if he didn't do the work, he didn't do the work. That was a consequence of being suspended, right? Special ed kids always were allowed to and had to be continue to make progress and have access to the work. So that piece that was a special education piece historically was now shifted to apply to all students, which is of great importance and also consistent with why they were changing the law, which is that you shouldn't lose out on instruction because you're being you're being consequenced. So we'll talk a lot about that next time because that's a that's a big piece that was a significant shift and also required a lot of work on behalf of the district to make sure that A, all kids were continuing their education and not just saying like, good luck to you, pick up the work requires more than that, number one. And number two, um, for kids that were out for extended, extended period of times, like just getting packets of work wasn't going to be sufficient anymore. And that's especially true for special ed kids. So Abby and I and other special education administrators that are my clients have spent a lot of time figuring out ways to facilitate that sort of brick and mortar piece that you need if you're out for a long, long time, if you end up in that bucket. Right, Abby? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think back to the roots of the positive behavior support movement, and that stuff was really happening in the 90s. And I think the 1997 revision of IDEA is where they folded in some of the original PBIS information into the IDEA. And so you can kind of see that setting the framework, Robin, for as the states are then revising things, they're referencing uh, an IDEA version that assumes positive behavior interventions are part of the mix. So I think that's all a piece of it. Um, The other modern piece in the future is really this idea of the school to prison pipeline Right. And so that idea that school discipline in some places can kick off a um, criminal justice set of consequences that then have long term repercussions for kids. And so I think that's another conversation we can have. But certainly you see that in the the analysis that's going around about school resource officers um, as part of the Black Lives Matter movement and, and schools really looking at the presence of police in schools and what that means 
as it intersects with discipline. And so there's a lot in this topic. And that's why we thought we'd stay big tonight so people could just kind of think about these big ideas. And then we can talk about some of the technical aspects of how you do these things uh, next time. The other piece that's tied to that, actually, that's really interesting is um, community policing with regard to training um, police officers to understand how to deal with disabled individuals, often disabled students, right? And how that interaction um, works in terms of um, violations of the law and also a, a community embrace of our disabled members of our community and how they fit in um, sort of the fabric of that. So that's uh, like uh, also been like a super um, hot and interesting topic as well. I know when I was looking at um, schools for my son, I looked at the discipline and suspension data of all of the schools in my proposed zones. And that was one of the questions I asked all the principals because I toured the schools and I asked them, you know, how many suspensions did you do this year? And I was curious to see if they would be open and transparent with me because I clearly had the numbers there published um, and asked them what their philosophy was because I was worried that my four-year-old son threw something across the room, he would get suspended. And I didn't want to put him in a school that had that type of philosophy. And it was just really interesting to see the range of answers and how the principals handled that. And it really did shape um, my preferences when I was ranking the schools because, you know, they set the tone, right? And if they say, well, some kids just need to be suspended, I think, oof, that's not the first response I want to an answer to that question. It's really interesting. I, I think that I didn't know that you do that. And once again, I, I feel like your like your parenting pro tip makes me feel like a giant loser because I never thought to do any of that. <laughs> and I train on the discipline law, but whatever. It's fine. Well, no, it's really important. And I have to say, um, we often do that when we're thinking about a student going to an added district school. One of the things we do is we look up the schools on the list. We look at some of their um, data around suspensions or restraints, and we have a transparent conversation. You could go to a school that has, you know, a thousand restraints or a hundred restraints. Which would you prefer? What might that tell you, right? What does that mean for your your student? And I think all that data is super powerful. And Robin, if I was a principal of your kid's school and I saw you come in with that like chart, I would be like, oh boy. Yeah. I will just say, you know, Angela, our kids go to different types of school sy systems. And so probably if I went to your school system, I wouldn't have asked that question. Um, and that's kind of sad, right? That you have to change your expectations based on the school system in which you send your kid. Yeah, yep. that's a nice way, Robin, to try and make me feel better, but whatever. What I was going to say, though, it's been this sort of interesting shift over time, as Abby said, like acknowledged herself, like in the old days, we did things a certain way because we thought that was how it should be done. And that was sort of the, the landscape we were in. And as we've shifted towards sort of more knowledge and a more enlightened view of how to, how to discipline or consequence kiddos, it's really interesting that those disciplinarians, right, the vice principals, poor vice principals, they get such a bad rap. They're in charge of discipline. Like, 
the better the the process and the better the training is that those people that are ingrained in sort of the old way, when they have access to special educators or um, people that have just a different view of how to um, consequence kids, like they can get there. And I do a lot of that myself, right? Because usually vice principals as a group of people are rule followers. And if you're breaking the rules, you're breaking the rules. And if you're following the rules, you're following the rules. And so if you put on them a set of rules that they need to follow, then they don't want to break the rules either, right? So then, and in not breaking the rules, they're becoming sort of more in tune with sort of the direction of discipline, which is a giant shift. So then it's really interesting because then you have these vice principals who were initially like the keepers of the discipline talking teachers off the ledge, right? Because they're, because the vice principals now have to follow these strict due process rules and the teachers are like, I just want the kid out of my classroom, right? So who's the villain, right? Who's the, is the kid the villain? Is the vice principal the villain? Is the teacher the villain? Is the district the villain? Is the rules the villain? So certain actions, Angela or Abby that are like, oh boy, like this goes right to the suspension bucket. Let's not goof around with restorative justice at this moment. Like, ugh, we're, we're right there. Yeah. Sexual assault isn't great. We'll start with that. Hate crimes. Um, even, even if the child has a disability and have a special interest in historical events. So I would tell you there's, there's a context that's always considered when you're looking at a hate crime scenario, but I'm going to tell you that more often than not, the impact of the hate crime on the Target is so substantial that there needs to be um, a significant consequence of some type. That being said, we've still worked really hard through those scenarios to find natural consequence outcomes that are appropriate and feel feel respectful to all parties. Um, I do think, Angela, we've crossed paths with, there's the big three that are always problematic and we'll talk about that, but there's also just uh, repeated targeted very hurtful actions that sometimes happen that need to not happen. Is that fair to say? I I think that's fair to say. I think also then the onus sort of falls on the district to do more for the kiddo that's, that's um, disabled and who keeps maybe perhaps doing things that are really outside the norm in a way that requires a severe consequence, but also, we need to be doing more for that kid. And that might be that like figuring out what the least restrictive environment is for them. So it ties into that as well. I think with discipline in general, though, with consequences in general, uh, an oft repeated piece for me is that the age matters, right? Especially with sort of this hate crime piece. Um, You know, a, a fifth grader writing a swastika on a desk and a ninth grader writing a swastika on the desk, there's there's a difference there in terms of the education. And we often talk about that as well because we want to course correct the behavior. And part of that is getting to the root of the behavior. And then part of that is learning like it's a one and done or it's a repeat offense or you're figuring it out and it's age appropriate. Not, not the violation of the handbook is age appropriate, but the conduct that ends up being the violation of the handbook could be arguably age appropriate, i.e. you don't know. <laughs> you don't know enough to know not to do it. Um, and so I've often said a consequence in middle school is going to be a lot different than a consequence a year later. In our old district, you're walking across the grass. 
right? From a middle school to a high school. And the consequences are going to be vastly different. Um, and, and and part of that is as you go along in your education, you should be part of a community and understand what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Um, but there does need to be some consideration of age. And a really good example of that is what's happening in Somerville right now with that little kiddo, that kindergarten kiddo that flipped up a girl's skirt on the playground. I use that example pre that all the time. And the police were called and now it's turned into a big to-do, like a massive to-do. And the question, and that, you know, that that ties in a lot of stuff we're talking about, like SRO involvement and student records and age appropriateness and and protected class and all of that stuff. Yeah, we should link that article into our show notes because that is a fascinating situation. Like, um, I mean, it's a parent's worst nightmare. The other kind of big takeaway, I think, for tonight, too, is that these uh, laws and rules are kind of like behavior modification for the adults in the building, right? They're kind of like a superstructure to give adults some uh, breadcrumbs, like a breadcrumb trail to follow when things are stressful and when things are heated so that you can proceed and kind of keep everybody's uh, rights managed and ideally come out for a better outcome for everybody involved. Um, and people say they come to school every day to teach kids and help kids. And so that usually doesn't mean excluding kids. That usually means figuring out a different path. And um, I guess from my takeaway would be you're better off if you can figure out a creative solution and keep a kid in school and control the consequence structure as opposed to having a kid be at home unsupervised while their parents are away at work, watching TV, playing video games all day and feeling kind of like they've escaped the context. So that may be a good takeaway for tonight too. Also, that sometimes ends up your consequence in the adults. Right. Right. The, right. the, the work the working parent. Right. Again, the idea of a consequence in an educational setting is to course correct the behavior so that it doesn't happen again. And so if the consequence is meant to do that, then it needs to be related to the event or have an understanding of why that was hurtful or a violation, as opposed to just sort of saying this is a punitive result and you live with it. And if you do it again, you'll get more of the same. Right. And that's not helpful. I think this is a good place to end because the next podcast will be about some of the technical steps that schools need to take when considering discipline for people with disabilities. So I think we'll stop here. And Angela, I can't wait to see how fired up you are for the next podcast. <laughs> I, I apologize. I feel like maybe I talk too much, but I, I, I spend a lot of time on this and I, and I, and I train a lot on it. And um, although I never bothered to figure out if my kids were going to get wrongly consequenced, I do care a lot about it. <laughs> and I, I do often find myself in the position, which is ironic, being like a, a cutthroat litigator by nature, uh, advocating for a softer, more corrective action. It's a funny place to be in, but I think that's just because I've digested the material so much. And I... I understand all the different instincts that are at play. And it's sometimes just helpful again to take a beat and figure out who, that we can align everyone's interests potentially and also give people their rights, which is really important.
And Abby and I appreciate that about you because we've both been in meetings where their tempers are are high and emotions are high. And then Angela gets on speakerphone and we leave half an hour later thinking like, ah, back, back on track. So that's very nice. That's very nice. (laughs) Um, All right. So have a good rest of the night and um, folks will be back next week with part two. Awesome. Thank you guys. Good night. Good night. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. If you have any questions, you can reach us at astalpodcast at gmail.com.